Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. It's like for me personally, I don't just need to enjoy a, a, a record. You know, a record is much more than just the listening and the cover. I need a lot from it. This is D'Angeni Parks. He's a drummer and a musician and a composer. He played in the Mars Volta for years. He's worked with everyone from Basement Jacks to Flying Lotus, Thundercat, Brian Eno. And on his own, he's made some truly wild music, often under the moniker Techno Cell. What you're hearing here is his song Bombay, which is actually a recording of a live performance, which you can watch on YouTube. It's nuts. He's playing that sample on a keyboard with his right hand while he's playing that crazy drum pattern with his left hand on the snare and his left foot working the hat. This is some next level of shit. The goal is, is something I've taken on in my, my personal life. I, I just want to create works that people do consider sinister in a good way and challenging and a landscape. I'd like to present my art as world. That is a world. What he's talking about is something that's very interesting. Something that we haven't really gotten to talk about on the Opus yet. Something that is particularly pertinent to this season. Why do most of us only ever listen to music that's pleasing? Why do we watch movies and TV shows that make us uncomfortable? Or documentaries that challenge our beliefs? Or read books that make us weep? But when it comes to music... Most of us tend to listen to the work that makes us feel the way we want to feel at the time. 
We all listen to sad songs, but generally when we want to feel sad. When was the last time you listened to a piece of music that made you feel uncomfortable, uncertain, unsafe, or just made you feel some way you couldn't describe? Music that doesn't wrap you up in a warm blanket. Music that pushes you down in the dirt and asks you, what are you going to do about it? Music that is a... The challenging laboratory. So this is a place for you to get new ideas and, and study and, and research and just relax and also not think. But it represents that. That's really what I get from that and any other records that I see as like a guide to life. That's how I create my music. I, I literally look at it like it's a physical safe haven from the world. And that's huge. It's not many albums that can do that. This is a way that you can create. This is a whole new way that you can look at things. This is a reinvention. That's what I really needed. Personally, what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for from a record is a mentor. Welcome to the Opus, Season 8. Brought to you by Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell. And in this season, we're going to cover a record that's been a mentor to a lot of your favorite musicians. A record that is most assuredly a classic. But it's not like any of the other records we've covered. There's no catchy choruses. There's no hit single. I mean, what it comes down to it, there's not even really songs. Clocking in over 90 minutes, it is... Well, it's, it's what DeAnthony Parks is talking about. It's not just an album. It's a laboratory. A challenging laboratory. And despite all of this, Miles Davis's Bitches Brew was also a massive hit. It is one of the best-selling jazz records of all time. What we're going to explore this season is why. Why did this record, a record that went against every rule set in the book to make hits, become a hit? It went against everything that was going on at popular music at the time. It went against everything Miles Davis had done in his career before that point. And still, this wild, experimental, challenging laboratory of an album ended up on so many American turntables in 1970. It went on to be certified platinum in 2003. Why have so many people listened to this record, loved this record, poured over this record, when most of the time, as a greater culture, we almost never listen to music like this? Jazz can be a divisive genre, like rap music or country or techno. It can be one of those terms that people often use as some weird, dismissive catch-all. 
when they're asked what kind of music they listen to, they often say things like, I pretty much listen to everything except for jazz. Or I pretty much listen to everything except for country. One I've heard a lot in my life is I pretty much listen to everything but rap. I mean, it's just talking. Shout out to that outro on De La Soul's Long Island Degrees. If you know, you know. Except jazz. I mean, what does a phrase like that even mean? I don't think people who say, I like everything except jazz, really even know. Not to get off on a rant here, but a phrase like that means that you haven't even actually listened to jazz. Because jazz is a wide, broad, diverse genre of music. And to write something off whole cloth like that is like saying, I don't like food. I mean, either you don't know what you're talking about or you don't have any damn taste. I know there are people listening to this right now that think that I am insane. Jazz lovers who will be totally confused with the notion that someone could write off an entire genre of music. But I also know that there's people that have started listening to this podcast because they love The Clash or Willie Nelson or Ozzy Osbourne. And when they saw a jazz album come up, they might have rolled their eyes. Maybe they didn't even get that far. Maybe they just said, I'll catch the next season. God, I hope not. But the folks out there that love punk music or love metal or love country... You should actually empathize with this. Because all three of those genres are genres that get written off a lot just because of the genre name alone. I mean, the core discussion about metal, when you talk about any metal writer or metal fan, is in defense of that whole genre as an important part of the modern musical canon. Which, I agree with them, it is. Just like metal, or punk, or opera, or techno, people come to these terms with preconceived notions that shape the way we hear a record before we even press play. You know, most of us, we don't listen to records the way D'Antoni Parks does. Most of us aren't looking for a mentor. We're looking for some great songs to sing along to. We're looking for an artist to magnify our feelings. You know, when I was sad, I always listened to Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. Because it's a damn sad record. And I want to feel... More sad. I want to soak in my sadness. Lately, I've been listening to Circles uh, by Mac Miller. Because there's something about it that I find comforting and peaceful. Which is what I'm looking for as a soundtrack to the very weird uncertainty that is life in 2020. You know, inversely, when I want to feel like I can run through brick walls, I put on boys' noise. When I want to feel like a gangster, I put on young Jeezy. And I'm not afraid to admit, as dorky as it seems, when I'm at home making pasta with my wife, sometimes we put on Italian pop songs from the 40s and 50s because we want a soundtrack to the movie of our life. It isn't often that we seek out albums that make us uncomfortable. Albums that ignore our feelings and buck our plans. Bitches Brew is not... A comfortable record. And even among jazz enthusiasts, it can be a very divisive album. Because it's challenging. It's rarely beautiful. Sometimes it's downright sinister. It's not to be tamed. I think it's very important not to treat this music like it has measles. This is Lauren Schoenberg. Beyond being an accomplished saxophone in his own right, who played with the likes of Benny Goodman, he's also an accomplished jazz conductor, a professor of jazz studies at Juilliard, and the senior scholar of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. This guy knows his jazz. Or like it's something that needs to be presented, that needs to be understood. Um, I understand that in the context of 2020, 
that might be an imperative in the world that we live in. But it, I, I'm hoping that there's some way to deal with great music like this without presenting it again as something that is radioactive to some people. Because I think once you set it in that context, it kind of colors how people approach it. Let's see, I was 11 when it came out, and my serious jazz listening was just starting. And I bought it in the early 70s, I guess when I was about 14, so I guess I would have bought it around 1972 or so. And man, I was, you know, bowled over by it. I'm not sure how much I, I liked it at the beginning, because my own taste in jazz at that time was uh, much more traditional, but I guess the, the best way that I could describe my reaction to it was that it, it, it was a trip. This was not a listening experience to make most people comfortable, but over the years, I've kind of used it as a, as a benchmark instead of trying to figure out what was wrong with it. Uh, I think pretty early, I started to try and figure out, like, why can't I dig it? This, this is the most important lesson you can learn. If you take one thing from this podcast, not just the season, this podcast period, I hope that it is this idea. Why can't I dig it? John Peel has a great quote about this. If you don't know who John Peel is, Sir John Peel, Google him. He was a BBC radio DJ responsible for breaking some of the most important bands in music history. The Clash, The Smiths, Jimi Hendrix, Velvet Underground. Damon Albert of Blur once said of Peel, John Peel's patronage was for me, like countless other musicians, one of the most significant things that happened to us in our careers. I mean, John Peel is a certified music legend and a man who certainly has earned the right to be a snob if he wanted. And yet, he has a wonderful quote that sort of says the same thing. Anytime he ever hears a piece of music that he doesn't like, he just assumes it's his problem because somebody had to like it. I mean, somebody had to like it enough to write it, and somebody else had to like it enough to record it, and somebody else had to like it enough to put it out. And so when I hear something I don't like right away, which is often, I try to think of John Peel and ask myself, well, why don't I like it? What's wrong with me? Or, in the immortal words of Lauren Schoenberg, why can't I dig it? So almost everyone I've talked to about Bitches Brew said something similar to what Schoenberg said. That when they first heard it, they didn't like it. Or at the very least, they didn't get it. I mean, this is Lauren Schoenberg. This is one of the greatest jazz scholars in America, and he didn't like this record when it first came out. But the important thing is, is that he didn't dismiss it because it was challenging. Because it was weird. He went back in. And he listened again. And again. Until he got it. And I think that's something very important that jazz, the great jazz innovators, when they were innovating at the point that the public was confronted with their music in a certain kind of way, that the popular musical world at that time had enough width and depth in it to have music that challenged, but yet that was accessible. Those two things aren't contradictory. And so uh, Bitches Brew at the time was like a real wake-up call that if Miles Davis is a certified jazz genius, which he undoubtedly is, uh, well, then why is he doing this? So the, the challenge becomes, what is he hearing that makes me not want to tap my feet the way I usually tapped it, or be comfortable, or even use it as wallpaper music like jazz 
was readily becoming and, and now has become. I mean, you'll hear jazz all the time uh, where we used to hear what we called music back in the day, which was elevator music. And, at, you know, I mean, as the found, founder of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, this is a, a question that has vexed me for a long time. You know, what does it mean that when I go into the supermarket or when I go into the elevator, I go into the, the store? I hear John Coltrane or Ben Webster or Louis Armstrong. On the one hand, I say, man, that's great. This music has leached into just the, the, the music you hear everywhere. And then on the other hand, um, I'm not sure whether to be encouraged or discouraged by it because it's become like wallpaper. Oof. Ugh. That hits home for me. As someone who grew up on rap music, back when rap music was still outlaw music, when it was still dangerous, when it was technically illegal for me to buy a copy of an album with a parental advisory on it at 16. Now, I struggle with the same thing when I hear Katy Perry singing over a trap beat. Or when I'm on hold with customer service and I hear a crack in 90s hip-hop drum break looped endlessly to keep me calm and placid while I wait to change my warranty. But this is the nature of progress, isn't it? The only way a knife stays sharp is if it's never used. So when a genre becomes more popular, it starts to lose its danger. And it's already on its path to becoming elevator music. But... That doesn't negate where it came from. And that doesn't mean that you should lump the real revolutionaries, the real dangerous artists, in with the parts of that genre that you now hear in your fucking dentist's office. I think if people really understood what was at the root of rap music when it came out, if people really understood what was at the root of the blues when it came out, uh, people really understood what was at the root of a lot of what we call classical music was when it came out, or novels. Uh, they all made people uncomfortable at the time because it was a slap in the face to the mores at the time. You know, you talk about the premiere of, of the Stravinsky work, or you talk about a novel by Henry Miller, or you talk about any number of things. I think what people really were responding to, that's not the way that we do it. And with Bitches Brew, I mean, it really flies in the face of virtually every tenet of music that is pop music. With Bitches Brew, it just flies in the face of everything because virtually everything at least has a melody or at least has a chorus structure that, you know, people who can't count measures, it makes no difference. They know that there's this thing that happens with some repetition at the beginning, and somehow at the end, it's going to come back to it. You know, whether they can articulate that or not, that's another question. But they know that that's the shape and form, like movies. You know, that's why Citizen Kane was so shocking when it came out. Uh, and in Bitches Brew is still like that because so few artists in whatever genre you want to call Bitches Brew have ever attempted anything like it. Plus, just the soundscape of it. It sounds different. I mean, a five-year-old could tell you that it sounds different. You know, if you played them a hundred records of 1969 and then played them that one, <laughs> they'll say it sounded different. You know, it's amazing on every level.
And that is what makes Bitches Brew special. Not just among jazz records, but even among Miles Davis records. See, Miles' earlier work, Kind of Blue, Sketches of Spain, Birth of Cool, as revolutionary as those records were when they came out, and they were revolutionary. They have, over time, through no fault of their own, lost their edge. They've become background music. And you've heard songs from all these albums, whether you were in a bar, or a nice restaurant, or hell, maybe even at your damn dentist's. This is not an insult to those albums. They're great records. It's just a fact. The fact that was not lost on Miles himself, either. Miles is always very future-forward. He didn't linger on his old work. He very famously didn't even keep copies of his albums in his house. He didn't want to get stuck in them. He wanted his next piece to be his best piece. Don't call me a legend, he said. A legend's an old man with a cane known for what he used to do. I'm still doing it. In the late 1960s, Miles saw that music was changing around him. He saw the future. And it wasn't in jazz. He was watching folks like Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone, Carlos Santana. People who were giants, were stars. But at the same time, making wild, creative leaps in music. He didn't just want in. He wanted to top them. With Miles especially, you just kind of, you can kind of hear how much, how decisive he must have been. Let's put that lightly. Let's put it nicely. <laughs> it's his world. We're all just jumping into it, right? This is Alfred Darlington, electronic musician, also known as Daedalus. God, Daedalus. The man's catalog is a catalog. It is deep. It is diverse. It is wild. And he has worked with some fantastic musicians. He started out as a jazz musician. He now puts out incredible electronic music on Brain Fever Records. The label is owned by Flying Lotus. It's, God, putting out some of the most inventive music right now. Check them out. He's also on the faculty at Berklee College of Music, teaching electronic dance instruments. And his life spent making music from samples, plus his relentless curiosity, has given him just this incredible breadth and knowledge of music history. And like you said, I mean, I think he probably did see the writing on the wall, but probably he, he probably thought, like, I can do better. I can do this all better which is a remarkable idea as a musician who has a long history. You know, he is a rock star. He is that jazz rock star, right? But the infamous turning your back on your audience, playing one single note and leaving the stage and people giving you a standing ovation for it. That, that speaks to a certain kind of artistry, right? And so can you imagine what it must have been like in the studio? And can you imagine too, coming from the trad bebop world of, of jazz and being at the height of their power, it's interesting from that perspective of maybe recognizing that there was no competition where they were coming from. And so it wasn't so much about conquering a new market to think about instrumental music, to think about the, the kind of place that Miles had been. He invented competition for himself. He invented that fire maybe, right? To keep it fresh and burning and explosive and all the things that they credit this record for. I love this idea. I love it. If you've been listening to this podcast since last season with Simon and Garfunkel, you'll know how much I love it. You will know how important I think competition is to creativity. No one was more competitive and more dead set on winning than Miles. The only people that'll tell you that you can't win in art are people who aren't artists or artists who are lying. Someone with a cynical eye could say that Miles looked at rock and funk and the money they were making and the fans they had, and he wanted a piece of that. And I have no doubt that that played a role in it. 
Both things can be true. Miles was about his money, but he was also about his art. But the thing that I got to wonder is, would he have even turned his eye to rock music if there were still dragons to slay in jazz? I doubt it. I mean, there was nothing left for him to do. The man invented multiple subgenres of jazz music. The man reinvented the entire genre like every 10 years. And now as the 60s were coming to a close, he looked around and he saw no competition left for him in jazz. And he saw what rock and funk musicians were doing with less talent and more fans, and he knew he could do better. And that is how Bitches Brew was born. Out of imagined competition and relentless drive, Miles fused the elements of rock and funk that he loved the beat that drives those genres, the explosiveness of the way the music is played, and he brought it to the sophistication of jazz and changed everything. And I think that's the artist's imperative. Either you become inspired by the constraints, the confines you're in, you, you fill the, the container, or you succumb to it and, you know, and you cease. And, and that seems like at least the majority of the great artists that we can pay homage to, they seem to surmount, they seem to overcome. And they burn somehow a little brighter for it. So you have this record that a lot of jazz fans consider to be Miles' excursion into rock, or even pop. But at the same time, Miles is drawing in this whole new crop of fans when it comes out, especially white fans, who consider it to be this freaked out jazz record. This brings me back to my point earlier in this episode about the preconceived notions we all bring to the terms of genre. In conclusion... Who gives a shit what it is? It's good. And this is a problem the record faced, which is that if it's a rock record, it's not doesn't mean it's not good. And if it's jazz record, that doesn't mean it is good. I mean, good music is good music. Bad music is bad music. This is George Grillo. He's a composer and a writer, and has quite literally written the book on this album. If you're not familiar with the Thirty Three and a Third book series, you should check them out. They're these fantastic, authoritative deep dives into classic albums. And George wrote the one covering Bitches Brew. And the genre label has very little to do with it. And there's plenty of jazz, tired and dull. And there's plenty of rock that is experimental and adventurous. And Bitches Brew is just about the most experimental and adventurous album that anybody who listens to pop music is going to encounter. You know, it's a rock record in the sense of that is, you know, that's the sensibility. Not just that it's electric, but they're playing with that kind of rock. You know, call it aggression. Um, Miles is not swinging anymore. They're playing, you know, they're playing rock beats. Uh, and he plays trumpet like, you know, like a rock musician. He's, 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 his phrases are very aggressive. He's gone from this kind of internalized sound to this very extroverted energy. He's really kind of grabbing you by the lapels the way he's playing. And he himself was sort of, I mean, he had been saying this before, but he wasn't really interested in playing 
jazz the idea of what people thought jazz was. Because he'd gone past jazz. He didn't even like the term jazz anymore. Thought it was a white person's word. He wasn't necessarily wrong either. He said what he was making wasn't rock or jazz. He called it soul music. And in that, he was really connecting the deep roots of African-American and American music in one fell swoop. He wasn't just challenging rock music by beating them at their own game or challenging jazz to try to keep up. He was challenging all of us to rethink our own culture, our preconceived notion of genre lines and borders. When he released Bitches Brew in 1970, he was pushing back on the very concept of what music could be. And what's so amazing is that people listened. People took the time to go to the store, buy the record, bring it home, put it down on the turntable, and listen to this brave new world. Here's this record, and again, it, you know, this two-disc album, this incredibly psychedelic album, I'm talking about Western classical experimentalism, beyond atonality, microtonality. It's a music concrete, as I, as I write about and talk about. It's an electronic composition. They're, they're not meant to have a form, they're not meant to resolve. They have no connection to songs whatsoever. You know, what is it about that album that, that people to buy it People are willing to listen to a hell of a lot of amazing stuff if you present it to them. You know, if you present it to them without talking down to them, without sort of warning them about something, without apologizing for it ahead of time. I mean, people are people are willing to listen to something that is powerful and gripping and honest. But the you know the the history of contemporary record labels is that they are afraid of not selling. You know, they're afraid of, you know, they're afraid of something new. They're afraid of, they're afraid of not, you know, not following the current trend. The accident of history is that Miles Davis was such a superstar. He was able to bypass that whole A&R gatekeeping kind of thing. That, that's not part of the equation at all. Makes me think of, well, you know, the algorithm that we're all beholden to these days on many fronts, but especially on music streaming sites. They designed this algorithm to discover what you like and feed you more of the same. I can't help but think that this album couldn't have existed in those constraints, you know, and, and that algorithm is just working to make our tastes more insular. Insular, and also I would say uh, it, it encourages people to be as safe as possible. Mm, yeah. mistake people make with music like this it's challenging music is that it's somehow a reflection of the artist's disdain for the common listener that it's made by snobs for other snobs to be snobby to but that notion doesn't really add up with this album Miles wanted his music to be popular he loathed highbrow jazz critics 
He wanted lots of people, regular people, to love his music. And I think George Grella hit it on the head when he said that, you know, people are willing to listen to challenging music if it's just presented to them, you know, without pretext and without talking down to them. Miles Davis didn't look down on listeners when he made an album like this. He put his faith in them, in their intelligence, in their ability, in their ears. It's been 50 years since Bitches Brew came out. And despite its popularity, it has not lost its edge. What has changed is us. It can be a lot to ask of a modern audience to take 94 minutes out of their day and just listen to a piece of music. But that's sort of what this album requires. It's a lot, I know. But like any good book, a lot of great movies, some of the best culture the world has ever known, it can ask a lot of the audience, but... If you give it the time, if you give it the effort, it will return it back to you tenfold. Right now, if you're listening to this any time around its release, you're currently in or about to join a damn near worldwide quarantine to help slow the spread of COVID-19. For the first time in our lives, we got nothing but time. So, if you're familiar with Bitches Brew... Now's the perfect time to revisit it. Give it another spin. See what new elements unfold for you. And if you've never listened to this album, I suggest you put your preconceived notions away, put your phone away, put your headphones on, sit down, and give it a full listen. It's a trip. In every sense of the word. Don't try to understand it. Don't overthink it. Just listen and take it all in. I don't have a definitive way to pin the record down, and I probably never will. And I see those things as, as incredibly great things. You know, you can't figure out the world. But again, you keep exploring it, and you keep finding new details, and you keep finding that it is more complex than you can grasp, but that complexity... Each new bit of complexity you uncover is really satisfying and exciting. And I think that is, you know, that's, that's the experience of the record. It doesn't, doesn't have a conclusion, and that's the experience of living in the world, too. I mean, nothing comes to an end. You know, the record can only fit so much music on a side that stops. It doesn't really come to an end. There's very little that you experience created outside of life itself that has that quality of never, never stopping. You know, no double bar line at the end and no, no period at the end of the sentence that cuts up, that concludes, it doesn't conclude. And again, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. It stops, but it never gets to an end. So you, you don't get to an end thinking about it or experiencing it. Sadly, we have to come to an end with this first episode. Next week, we're going to dive into how this wild piece of recording was actually made, and how the partnership between Miles Davis, the incredible band he assembled, and his producer Tia Macero would change the way everyone makes records, influencing us still today. I would, of course, like to thank my guest, D'Antony Parks. Do yourself a favor. Listen to his music. 
techno self and watch that video of him performing that song Bombay Live. It is nuts. Also, be sure to check out Daedalus's work, all of it, the whole catalog. Super crazy. Alfred, you're such a gem. Pretty sure we're going to have him back next week when we start breaking down tape splicing and the studio wizardry of this album. He's a good source for that sort of thing. And a big thanks to Lauren Schoenberg, the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, and uh, writer George Grella. Such a joy to talk to people with that level of knowledge, and even better when they're so kind and patient with me. <laughs> Consequence of Sound's running a contest over on their website where you can win a huge box set that contains every single album Miles Davis has ever recorded, which is insane. So head on over to consequencesound.net to enter. And as always, like and subscribe. Tell your friends to listen to the Opus while we're all on lockdown in these coming weeks. Be sure to stay safe out there. Remember to wash your hands for at least 20 seconds. And if you don't know how long that is, it's about uh, 10% of the first track on Bitches Brew. <laughs> so, yeah, just humming that along. Pharaoh's Dance. It'll get your hands real clean. Thanks for listening, y'all. For Consequence Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell. And this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.